Hello and welcome to our first review of the Lupus Literature for 2024. We're going to be recording these podcasts for you every month, so you'll always be able to keep up to date with the latest literature and expert opinions. I'm Ed Vitale. Uh, I'm the chair of the Lupus Forum. I work at the University of Leeds in the UK, and I'm joined today by Professor Vivica Strand, who's an adjunct clinical professor of immunology and rheumatology at the Stanford University School of Medicine in California. Welcome, Vivica. Thank you. Nice to be here. So today we're going to review some key January publications that were selected um, for presentation in the Lupus Forum. And we'll jump straight into the first one, which I, I think I'll introduce this, but actually I think you know these data very well, don't you? Because this is about the efficacy and safety of teletasacept, which we, you and I discussed in our ACR podcast. So um, teletasacept is a, a newer molecule in the BAF inhibition class, which we all know from the use of belimumab. And um, the idea here is that the BAF is actually a, a, a slightly more complicated system because you've got BAF and April, two ligands that have similar role, and they bind to three different receptors called BAF receptor TASI and BCMA. And so the idea is that belimumab is, is neutralizing BAF, but it's not neutralizing April. Uh, and April is more important for sort of later stage B cells. So the theory of teletasceptis is a molecule that block both BAF and April, or BLIS and BAF, same thing, um, and therefore more comprehensively block the system, get a B cell, better B cell blocking effect to be more effective. It's a molecule developed in China, and it's actually been quite extensively used in China, but here we're only seeing uh, phase two data. So this study was an active lupus trial. It, it was an all lupus organs trial, so it wasn't specifically non-renal, uh, and there are some renal patients in there, but more of them had skin joints, immunology, general. Um, fully Chinese studies, so all 100% of the patients were Chinese. Um, like most lupus studies, mostly women. Steve, I needed to be eight, and in practice here, it was like about 10 to 14, which is pretty typical for a lupus trial. 90% um, of patients had either a bioleg A or a B, me or thereabouts, meaning that a few actually didn't have an A or a B. And the main organs were immunology, skin about 80%, renal around 60%, MSK a bit lower than I think we normally see it, about it's around 39%. Um, standard of care, they could increase the steroids, no new immunosuppressants, fairly standard. Um, there were 60 patients in each, or 62 to 63 patients in each of the four groups, one for placebo and then three doses, 80, 160, 240. So that's pretty small for this kind of study because you get a lot of heterogeneity in lupus populations. And I did think the groups looked slightly unbalanced to me. Um, but the main results were, as you see there on the screen, that an SRI4 response was met in 33.9% on placebo uh, with significantly higher reported for 80 milligrams, 71%, 160 milligram dose, 68.3%, and the 240 milligram dose, the highest at 78.8%. So I think this is, as we've often said, these effect sizes seem large, and that makes you think, come, 
you know, want to take a bit of a deeper dive into how it was done and what the data showed, doesn't it? Well, Ed, I agree. We saw this study at ACR, and of course now it's published. It's a it's quite positive. And you can see over on the right side of this slide also, the onset of effect is evident even at four weeks. And there's statistical significance for all of the doses, although there clearly is some benefit that's better with the 240. Mm. I, I wonder a bit whether this is because it's an Asian population, but it's it's difficult to know. And going through all the data, I think it, it's very interesting. Uh, one of the points about the trial that supports its positivity are changes in the biomarkers. And you can see here very nice changes in C3 and C4 levels that were actually fairly low in a majority of patients. And so it's again, nice supportive data is the time to the first uh, severe lupus flare. And this is, is nicely differentiating, arguing again for the 240 milligram dose being a better dose than the other two. Now this study was done between 2016 and 2018. So it was finished quite some time ago. And I remember reviewing the data even before it was presented at ACR. I'm not sure why the, the delay in, in putting it out in the public domain. And I do know that they are planning or are in the midst of doing an international study. So it will be very interesting to see if this product behaves similarly in a much larger phase three study, which is of course what happens with our positive phase two trials. They move on to phase three with a much larger population that's much more different from phase two, and you don't get the same results. And that's, we've seen that repetitively. I think another point of course, is that being a bliss and April inhibitor makes it a more effective type of therapy. And so one of the points is that a US company, Alpine Biosciences, has povitacicept, which is also a bliss and April inhibitor. And their data suggests that it's even more effective against April than teletacicept while still maintaining the benefit against bliss. So we'll just have to see, but I think this has become a class of therapies now for us to pay attention to. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering, like you say, about does, do, you know, this is a slightly different type of lupus trial to most of the licensing studies we see. And does the fact that it was all done in one country have an effect on the results? And it may be, I, you know, I could imagine, you know, so patients in China tend to get more severe lupus, but uh, I don't, the way that standards of care may be different. I don't know exactly. Um, and that might be one factor leading to bigger deltas and differences between treatment groups. We know from other big studies that we quite commonly see differences when the results are broken down according to different ancestries. 
um, and also according to different geograph geographic locations, like the embrace study of Alimimab being quite a classic one. And so those things have quite large effects, which really makes me think I really want to see this effect replicated across a more demographically um, diverse population to know what's going on. It's you, Your point about the effect being seen as early as week four is interesting, actually, because that that's quite surprising. Um, for because but one right. thing about bulimimab is it takes time to work, isn't it? Um, well, uh, part of that was a bulimimab trial designed, right? Because they they really made it difficult to see a difference because there were changes allowed in the first four months of course, of course in background yeah. therapy. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's a that is a good point. So uh, I guess it's promising, but we have to watch for the next trial results agreed yeah. agreed okay should we go on to the next one so fatigue is a very big effect of lupus and i think we're finally becoming a lot more cognizant of the magnitude of that effect and so this is the the leaf study which was a way of looking at patient reported fatigue across a variety of components. And it's a very interesting study. So they started with the participants of which there were 1,647 patients. And then they looked at those that had self-reported lupus and those that were could not be included in the analysis, of course, were excluded. And then essentially they had a variety of inclusion criteria shown here. And they made sure patients were 18 or over. And essentially what they did was they administered a variety of patient-reported outcomes, a variety of instruments. And they, they used those to characterize the fatigue. So, for instance, there was a disease activity assessment uh, by a numerical rating scale by the patients. There was HADS for depression. There was an insomnia severity uh, index, and there was also PSS and IPAC. And then they looked at the fatigue by the facet fatigue, also by a fatigue intensity NRS, and also by the MFI. And finally, they had the assessment of usefulness. Did the patients think that this was a useful set of instruments did it actually inform them of their fatigue, which I found very interesting. So the majority of these patients reported significant fatigue, 78.9%, which is consistent with what we know from what our patients tell us, but we haven't had good ways of one measuring it clinically or in trials with the exception of the facet fatigue. And we do know that fatigue has a huge impact on other PROs as well as health-related quality of life. And there is, of course, the vitality domain of the SF36, which often correlates quite closely with the facet in clinical trials. So fatigue, interestingly, had a strong independent association with insomnia, and that's not a measure we've typically used, the insomnia severity index. And that may be a, a good thing to use since we now have most of our patients completing these questionnaires 
at home at their convenience online. And so we're not sitting over them or standing over them while they're trying to hurry through the questionnaires. I think that the LEAF was well accepted and considered helpful by the participants because 93% of them said it was helpful and 92% said they would recommend it to another. And if we look at the fatigue comparisons, those huge numbers, 987 with fatigue versus those without significant fatigue, 263, we see statistical differences in virtually every parameter except low physical activity, which I think is of interest. Disease activity, statistically significant. Pain, first. Anxiety, depression, and insomnia, as we talked about, and stress as well. And I think it tells us that we really do need to pay more attention to these questionnaires and finding ways to use them in our practice. Now, whether we should do such a large multi-dimensional assessment such as the LEAF every new patient or periodically in patients may be too much, but then again, it may be quite helpful because apparently these patients found it very helpful to complete all these questionnaires and it essentially helped them with their perceived stress as well as their sleep. And I think that that's really quite interesting. Ed? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting your point that the, the patients felt that filling the questionnaire was of itself useful. I mean, in a way, I found it's, I know patients sometimes find it quite annoying when I give them a lot of questionnaires. <laughs> but, but then on, on, on the other hand, they also sometimes say, I've had that whole consultation. Nobody ever asked me about what mattered to me. Um, and so in that sense, you know, some questionnaires to actually capture others, you know, the, the, perhaps what, pe what people sometimes call the invisible symptoms um, could help somebody just to, to, you know, to say I've explained, I've expressed and documented the symptoms I'm having. The, in terms of the, the one thing I was thinking about, though, is that the, uh, in my clinical practice, the thing about I, I recognize a lot of people tell me they have fatigue, but I find it very difficult to understand the reason for the fatigue in that particular person. But sometimes it is simply disease activity. Uh, and if I treat it, it might make a difference. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's some other problem or something related to lifestyle or something. Sure. And, it, and I find it I, I struggle in clinic to understand that and then therefore to know how to manage it. Well, perhaps, you know, if you looked into it a little bit more, you would you would recommend something different for depression yeah. versus insomnia. Yeah. Or, okay. you know, stress, reported stress versus uh, one of these others. I do think disease activity plays a huge part in fatigue, for sure, because I think we do see that when disease activity goes down, fatigue is one of the first things that patients do note as being better. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of this is fibromyalgia. Yes, I know that they fill out the first and it says that they have fibromyalgia. But I think that that's just part of when you link your physical disease with the multi variable symptoms that come along with lupus. 
how could you really not answer many of those questions and, in a uh, similar fashion? I absolutely agree. I found the same thing when we did lupus arthritis research that how these these tools to decide whether someone has also got fibromyalgia, they really they, it's hard for them to function well when someone has got an active arthritis due to another disease at the same time. So, okay, so that one's interesting. And then we've got one more study to discuss, which is a, an initial paper from a study called SPOX, um, which is uh, published by Alain Arnaud et al. Uh, and SPOX is a very large observational study um, so it's the SLA Prospective Observational Cohort Study. It's AstraZeneca sponsored. Um, uh, so this is about the burden of SLA in clinical practice, and in particular, according to interferon gene signature. So the, the idea is here is that from, from many of the drugs that are licensed for lupus, including anaphrolimab that AstraZeneca make, but also others uh, that are that are currently marketed or those in development, we often see some baseline um, variables that stratify who's going to get a better response. And common among these, well, so we know that for some, for example, polymimab, it was double-stranded DNA complement. Um, for most drugs, a higher SLEDI score um, is associated with better efficacy of the drug. And for anaphrolimab and some of the others, especially some of those in phase two, the interferon gene signature has been associated with a better response. So that leads to the question um, of identifying, you know, who are these people who have either a high SLEDI or a high interferon gene signature? Is their natural history different from the patients with lower SLEDI or, or lower interferon gene signature? And therefore, that would that guide us into how to use one therapy or another? So what they did was they enrolled 823 patients in 135 centres across eight different countries. And the patients were seen twice a year up for up to three years. Uh, most types of lupus could go in, although active lupus nephritis was excluded. Um, and then, uh, so I think there are a number of analyses planned, but the paper we're looking at here is just the baseline data. I think some of the important questions that come up will be answered when the follow-up are, uh, are presented. So if you look in this paper, the main thing you see is quite descriptive results um, showing um, uh, many characteristics of the patients in terms of demographics, time of disease onset, the organs affected, the immunosuppressants and biologics being used, the, the glucocorticoid use, um, flares, comorbidities, um, all of these different things, according to whether the sleeve dive was greater than 10 or lower than 10, or 10 or more, or lower or lower than 10, or whether the interferon gene signature using the same gene signature used in the anaphrolimum trials was high or low. And um, so for the sleeve dive, I think most of the results were ones that you might guess. So patients who had higher SLEDI scores, younger age of onset. So yeah, we know that people with young, younger age onset lupus are under about 28 or so at age of onset, you're going to get more severe disease. And they also had things like more flares, and, and needing more therapies and steroids. That's not all that surprising, I suppose. 
for the interferon gene signature that were some things we know quite well and some things um, that may be slightly surprising. So again, they were younger age of onset. Again, they were in terms of uh, ethnicity. So the coding they used, it's not an ideal one. They said Asian, black, white, uh, and Latino ethnicity. So Asian and black had mostly, the majority of those patients had high interferon gene signature and interferon low patients were much more likely to be white, but I would really like to see those broken down into slightly more meaningful subgroups, to be honest. Um, trends to higher Celidine, but not significant. Then some things that that the, the high, inter, high interferon patients had less of. So the high interferon patients had less damage, they had less comorbidities like strokes, renal disease, metabolic syndrome, and they had less musculoskeletal disease, but more skin disease. So some of the, you know, I generally associate interferon gene signature with being a bad thing, but um, there were some things actually that were worse in the interferon lows. Reasons for that? Well, maybe the interferon lows were simply, they're older, they're going to have more comorbidities, maybe. I think the relation that that relationship with MSK versus skin, interferons high have more skin, interferons low have more joint disease. I've seen that before in my own research, and I've seen it in a few studies. So I think I think that's a real thing, something to do with the biology of the lupus. The interferon high patients were generally receiving more treatments overall. Um, let's say more immunosuppressants, more more biologics, yep. and importantly, a lot yes. more. Um, so. Right. I think, you know, I think this is telling us something about this population, but some of, I think some of these things, I'd be very interested to see how they evolve over time. Because a lot of these differences we're seeing had arisen before enrollment into the study over the years and, and, and understanding the causality and things is maybe a little bit complicated in some, in some cases. What, what did you think about this? Is there anything that isn't complicated in lupus? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I think that it characterized a population that we are already more or less recognizing. Hmm. Again, it would be nice to really trust the biomarker of interferon gene signatures so we would know who we should expect a response in, with anaprolumab with. Yeah. But we didn't see that in the trials and so we can't use that as a predictor i think uh this study should help us characterize patient population but we're almost beginning like you said to recognize who these patients are based on their clinical characteristics and how their disease activity progresses so I think it's an interesting study. We'll learn more, as you said. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I often say, I did a lot of work with interferon gene signature, and I often started saying, I think I can guess a lot of people's interferon signature um, by what they look like with their lupus, their, 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 their routine immunology, things like that, their demographics. I can often make a pretty good guess what it's going to be. I think interferon signature and response to anaphrolimab is again, yeah, complicated again, because um, on one hand, is it telling you what molecules driving that disease and therefore which would be more effective to block? But on the other hand, it could just be telling you who's got most active disease, better than the sleep. That's diet. right. The two people with a sleep right. 10 can have different disease activity. 
and the interferon signature might tell you that and the higher one with the more genuine active disease is is more late to show a big response and in that sense it would stratify any drug not just nephrolimab so right. right i mean the other thing i noticed from this was something again i saw it in my own research um which is uh, so what a long time ago we did a look to the cohort and i had the idea that high interferon signature um would help you know the people who complained of worst quality of life. I thought they'll they'll have interferon signatures, flu-like stuff, isn't it? So they're going to complain of fatigue. They're going to complain, you know, th these sorts of symptoms. And I asked a research fellow to have a look at it, and she came back to me and she said, "No, it's the other way around. The high interferon ones actually felt a bit better on a lot of quality of life measures. The interferon lows were the ones who felt worse." And I thought, "Are you sure you've got that right?" And then I, I, I spoke to another <laughs> group of investigators and they said, oh, yeah, we found the same thing. And when I, I and then I was speaking to a statistician colleague and she kind of made me think about it a different way because she sort of said, well, how do you get into your clinic? And I sort of said, well, they usually have positive blood tests, you know, ANA, things like that. And, 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 and yeah, that goes with interference signatures um, as well. If you got one blood test or more and she was like so if you were negative for those blood tests how would you get into your clinic and i was like well you'd have to have much worse symptoms to get into the clinic if you were if your if your bloods were normal than if they were abnormal so in other words it's how you get into the study and it's not not even recruitment actually it's just being in this clinic so you could be recruited it's yes selection yeah mostly selection. beyond my control Totally beyond the right. person collecting the study, beyond the the, the 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 table one of characteristics. You know, it's on. There's an unseen effect that's used that where the interference signature itself biases who's in the study. So yeah, I think that's so. Uh, the, the, unpicking these effects in trials can be complex. But anyway, yes, I think we have to we have to look for the longer term follow up. But it helps. I mean, it just helps give you a picture, doesn't it, of of the yeah, very interesting the spectrum of lupus and, and and the populations in whom we might use the new therapies that become licensed and probably be a resource we use for a long time. So uh, that's all we've got time for today. Um, thank you for joining me, Vivica. It's great to hear your thoughts on the uh, latest developments in lupus management. Thank you, Ed. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, you can find the full slide decks for these three papers at lupus-forum.com. Uh, the Lupus Forum is free to access. All our content's free to download. Uh, don't forget to register for updates on the Lupus Forum. You'll get email updates whenever new content is made available. And you can also follow us on Lupus Forum, or one word, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thanks again and see you next time.